Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing fantastic today, Tim, mostly because our guest who we have on today brings a lot of knowledge, brings a lot of passion. She's a real powerhouse. But before we get to that, Tim, you're a real powerhouse. How does that feel? How are you doing? <laughs> Thanks for asking, Lance. I am doing great today. I'm very excited to introduce this conversation that we had with Dr. Michelle Ward, who is a criminal psychologist and a clinical neuroscientist. She has her own podcast and has been on TV a lot. And we have a great conversation with her. We really do. And I love it when people of her stature can join the show and bring not only all of this knowledge, but a little bit of levity. She's really funny. Like we have a really good time going back and forth with her and then getting right back on track with these more serious topics. And she says she needs to do that in her profession. She needs to be silly because everything can get kind of too heavy. We always appreciate that when we can hit on all sorts of emotions while we have a conversation with somebody. But overall, I'd classify this conversation as a bit provocative. And we do talk a little bit about serial killers and Jeffrey Dahmer and more because Dr. Ward has a show called Mind of a Monster that is airing now and they go into Jeffrey Dahmer on that show. And that show is really a fascinating look at Jeffrey Dahmer if you want to get a real-life account of his crimes. But, Tim, if people want to get a real-life account of every episode we've done without commercials or ads or any sort of breaks, where would they find that? Listeners can subscribe to Crawlspace Premium right there on Apple Podcasts. They get ad-free episodes, early releases, and our weekly bonus show. And if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product there. And because we covered so much ground in the conversation that's coming up, we actually never even touched on Dr. Michelle Ward's nonprofit organization, Innocent Lives Foundation. And you can check out everything that the Innocent Lives Lives Foundation does at innocentlivesfoundation.org. And if people wanted to check out everything that's going on in the world of social media in regards to Crawl Space and all of our shows, where could they go, Tim? I should write this down. Listeners can find us on social media at Crawl Space Podcast or Crawl Space Pod. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're going to cut quick to commercial here, and we'll be right back with Dr. Michelle Ward. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Michelle Ward. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you for joining us. It was a little bit of a battle, I would say technically, but you persevered. You fought through it. We found out that you have several different microphones for all of the podcasts that you do. Yes, I do have different microphones and evidently I can't work any of them. So I don't know if anybody should take my opinion very seriously about anything at all. But I am a neurocriminologist or a criminal psychologist, whatever made up title you want, but PhD in neuroscience. And I study strictly the biological and genetic underpinnings of violent crime. Before it was even, true crime was even a thing. Like I look at true crime from a more like holistic what are our predispositions genetically and otherwise that can lead us down that trajectory that aren't explained by environmental factors alone. So you were in true crime when it was just crime. Right. <laughs> it was not cool. People thought I was very weird. I'm like, wait, now you're all weird with me. And I've done a lot of television and podcasting for investigation discovery. So I've been with them for gosh, 12, 13 years doing stuff with them. Now you said just a second ago that you explored the concept holistically. Can you unpack that for me just a little bit? Certainly. So historically, and I think this exists as well today, people want to look at a crime or a criminal 
and be like, aha, we can point to divorce or child abuse or drug use and try to say, that's why this person's a criminal. And that makes us feel better. We feel A, we understand it. B, we can control it and prevent it in our own homes. However, from a research perspective, that just doesn't hold water because if it were truly solely the environment affecting our behaviors, then wouldn't we have, I don't know, just generations of criminals coming out of war-torn countries or every victim of abuse would become an abuser? And that's just not how the data play out. I mean, it started a hundred years ago. People started saying, well, what are the individual differences? What protective factors do we have individually? And what risk factors do we have individually? And it turns out there's not only genetic risk factors. I mean, you can look at a pedigree of a of a killer and find lots of murderers, lots of criminals in their background. But there's also things like trauma during the birthing process, you know, head injuries, all sorts of biological phenomena that do relate to criminal behavior. I mean, shoot, if you go into any prison in the United States, 60% of incarcerated men have head injuries. The idea was, okay, we know that there's environmental risk factors, but are there genetic and biological predispositions that also can lead us to criminal behavior? Wow. Sounds good. I mean, are there? Yeah, there are. Some people embrace it and love it and are comfortable with it. And a lot of people don't like it because A, it questions legal culpability. It's are you liable for behavior if it's not your fault that you have brain trauma. There's also lesions in the brain. We see brain tumors in various areas of people's brains that are associated with bad behavior. Is it their fault? Legally, people don't like it. Socially, people don't like it. You know, the argument I always make is the more we know, the more we can do to knock somebody off of a bad trajectory. I do talk about it a bit on this podcast, um, Mind of a Monster, because we do have very dynamic, layered criminals. And it's a great opportunity to show like not all criminals are born the same. They're all actually get there quite in quite different ways. And if you include biology and genetics into the conversation, you get a, a much richer picture. I definitely want to get into your podcast, but you mentioned possible head injuries or trauma during the birthing process. That, well, that's definitely not the person's fault, right? Right. I mean, we see sometimes with forcep delivery, you've probably seen these people before walking around with dents on their foreheads. It's like sometimes those are forcep deliveries gone wrong. I mean, forceps themselves are important, especially if you have like a shoulder dystocia and your baby's stuck and you've got to get it out. Time is of the essence because you don't want them to go without oxygen. If a practitioner doesn't know how to use them properly, and many don't, you can end up with damage. Damage to the prefrontal cortex, this area right here behind your forehead, is something we see a lot that changes personality and can lead to antisocial behavior. This is like our emergency breaks. It's what stops us from acting on impulses. I mean, men in general have very delayed, sorry boys, very delayed <laughs> prefrontal cortex maturity, but everybody does. Women, it just, they mature quicker. But if you have a lesion or an injury in that area, it never matures. You always are impulsive. I think mine is still in the uh, very early stages of development. I'm going to have to ask the people around you, Lance, to really understand about your frontal cortex maturity. When I am not recording, I do walk around with forceps on my head. <laughs> I'm predisposed to, to that. That's sexy. <laughs> I do have a serious question, though. You said then we can form an opinion. We can work to better educate people. Who's the we in this? You know, the mouse in my pocket and me. <laughs> <laughs> For me, the target audience are parents, 
pediatricians, teachers, just general adults, humans on the planet, because we actually have a lot of information about what we can do to kind of offset some of these risk factors. And I've noticed a lot of that stays in academia. It doesn't make it to the private sector. Something as simple as adding omega-3s to children's diets, even typical children, everybody, it really does help with neural development and things like menopause. That's a simple starting place. But if you have somebody or child who you think has, I don't know, some impulsivity problems, and impulsivity is also highly genetic. You have two impulsive parents, you're going to have an impulsive kid. That's just the way it is. But they can engage in biofeedback or something like that. That really does help that frontal lobe mature. It trains it. So there are answers. Again, does that mean your child's going to become a criminal? Absolutely not. But if you look backwards through criminals' histories, you have your hot-blooded criminals. And those are those, you know, the impulsive, often the head injuries, they get bar fights, they beat up their wives, they kill their girlfriends. Then you have the cold, calculating, what we call the cold-blooded or predatory murderers. Those are your serial killers and your Ponzi scheme people. That has a lot more to do with psychopathy. Psychopathy is not, you don't see a lot of problems in the frontal lobe. You'll see some stuff in the amygdala, that whole lack of remorse, guilt, empathy. That has a lot to do with the amygdala part of the brain, but that's not brain damage. We relatively all agree that it's genetic. And I looked at it in six to nine-year-olds before they could commit criminal behavior and was measuring their arousal levels. A lot of times in psychopathic individuals, you'll have reduced autonomic arousal. Their heart rate's low. They're not very excitable. They're bored. So they become sensation seekers. I talk a lot about on the podcast about, ah, this person was probably bored. This person's a sensation seeker. Or this person's related to a whole host of criminals. Like Dahmer, our first season of Mind of a Monster is a whole different breed of killer. He doesn't really fall into any of these boxes that I'm describing. I mean, gosh, he was diagnosed with schizotypal personality disorder. I think if we could look at his brain, we would have seen something very interesting. But unfortunately, his parents got into a contentious legal battle over his brain when he was dead. One parent wanted it to be donated to people like me to study. And then the other parent was like, because you want it, I won't let you have it. I know that you've done some work on MRIs. What would you have done with Dahmer's brain had you had it to study? I think we would have looked for lesions. I mean, it's much better if the person's alive because then you can measure brain function. Once the person's dead, we're just looking at the at the brain itself and we can measure and weigh, we can weigh the various parts of the brain to see if, oh gosh, you know, this part of the brain is much larger than we'd expect or this part looks atrophied and much smaller than we'd expect. But when a person is alive, we can actually measure the function of the various structures in the brain that are responsible for these behaviors. Nerds, we're just a bunch of nerds. <laughs> I do want to ask, ask about in your bio, it says you've been called the real life Clarice Starling. <laughs> that was the general manager of Investigation Discovery who called me that. So I did a couple of shows with Investigation Discovery. One was called Stalked, Someone's Watching, and that was all about stalkers. And the other one was called The Mind of a Murderer, which is not to be confused with The Mind of a Monster, which is the podcast I'm doing now. In Mind of a Murderer, I would go in and poke these killers. I would go into prisons. I would go into death row. And I would really try to trick them and get at the true motivations for the criminal behavior. And so I think that's where he got that from. So knowing that, then who is the real life Hannibal Lecter? <laughs> yeah, that is totally irrelevant. I love the Clarice Starling bit because it made me feel fancy and like Jodie Foster. And then I imagined myself at Quantico and it'd be fun to have a gun, right? You know, that you get to at least pose with, never really use. I think it's the Clarice Starling came from being a female, 
and really just wanting to play with serial killers. And that's that's what I've been doing. Interestingly enough, Tim has been referred to as the real life Jodie Foster. So <laughs> there's probably some kismet here. I was actually on a date once and Jodie Foster was sitting next to us. And my date thought it would be really funny to take his fork and take a bite of her food. And he did. What did she do? She was really graceful about it. She was like, oh, excuse me. Um, he's like, well, I just want to see if it was good. I think something was lost in translation there, but I was like, okay, that's the last date. I have a, a question about the Ponzi scheme reference that you mentioned. You categorize Ponzi scheme with serial killers. I know a lot of people will think like, how is that even close to a serial killer? How is that close to a serial killer? I love that. If I could leave with just one fact that people would consider, it's this. Psychopaths walk among us freely. Sometimes you want them to. So one out of every 100 of us is very high in psychopathic features. Now, you want your surgeon to be a pro-social psychopath. You want your country's leader to be a pro-social psychopath. You want your money manager to be a pro-social psychopath. It's the antisocial psychopaths that we worry about. So an antisocial psychopath would be a money manager gone wrong and becoming a Ponzi scheme person or a serial killer. Those are antisocial psychopaths. So I try to destigmatize that label. And honestly, it's hard to cut nature at its joints that way, right? It's not like you can identify it so clearly. But the definition of a psychopath is somebody who lacks guilt, remorse, and empathy. The key is empathy. So they're able to operate in this world without being burdened by worrying how who they're hurting. Now, naturally, that seems really scary. But if you're a surgeon, let's say you're a trauma surgeon, you can't be burdened by emotions. You have to operate without them, quite literally. So I try to destigmatize that so that when we do identify callous and emotional traits in children, that does not necessarily mean they're going to become that they are psychopaths because let's face it, children are callous and unemotional, generally speaking. But there are a category of children who are very callous and very unemotional, and it does not ever normalize those you have to nudge into pro-social behaviors so that you don't end up with a serial killer. Well said. Okay, I, I have another heavy-hitting question for you. When titling your shows using the word monster, do you think that that, in a way, dehumanizes the impact that they have as a horrible person doing these horrible things? I did not name that show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your what's your opinion on that then? Well, so this podcast comes after a TV show that already exists called The Mind of a Monster. So we're using those episodes and they're quite different because A, now there's a host, me, and I'm interviewing the participants and we have very different participants and, and the whole show takes a different angle, but that show existed before the podcast existed. True crime's interesting. I always say I like to serve vegetables with this fascination with true crime because, um, you know, it can be exploitive. I love working with ID and it's, it's my favorite network. I think they do a very good job of making sure the victims' voices are heard and trying to really sprinkle in the science. There is a function of catchy titles. I mean, shoot, I, I did name my other podcast, How Not to Raise a Serial Killer, because I wanted people to, to listen. So I think titles can be a little controversial, but the meat of the story really does humanize everybody, especially the victims. And I think that both Investigation Discovery and Arrow, the production company, have done a good job. I interview two people who were 
attacked by a serial killer and escaped. Like, talk about heavy. Like, okay, what's the worst thing that happened to you? Oh, you know, nearly killed by a serial killer. I mean, that stuff's not something you hear every day. I'm glad that you answered it like that because it's a conversation that we enjoy having with other creators in the space. And I think we all feel the same way. And we can categorize comedy true crime podcasts, if they're done well, is great also. Because whatever it takes to get people to listen to the story and whatever they come away with, it doesn't matter how they got there. You know, if they enjoy the comedy of it or if they were attracted to a sexy title, if they heard the story and walked away with something that they didn't have going in and they learned, fantastic. Exactly. Like the omega-3s I feel my, feed my children, I have them in like a really cute little box and they think they're eating gummy bears. And I don't care how I, what the medium is, how I get them to be attracted to my content as long as my content I can stand behind. I do get it. You don't want to be salacious. You don't want to be exploitive. And we can be. I'm guilty myself. I do believe that, you know, at the end of the day, I'm trying to help people understand there's some preventable aspects of this. And there's some ways we can learn to protect ourselves. If we leave somebody with that, sure, give them their entertainment, tell them a fun story. But if you can leave them with information that empowers them, and I I don't even, I don't even like saying it like that. It sounds so cliche, but heck, if you are worried about your child being a psychopath and you're afraid to tell anybody about it, but you can go to this podcast or you can watch a professional tell you like, hey, you can do these things. You do you don't have to tell anybody you're doing them. You know, like that kind of stuff I think is important. You know, and that's why in, in this particular podcast, you know, I'm so used to interviewing the criminal, but to interview the victim is a, an entirely different perspective. There's victimology. These serial killers, they don't just have an MO on how they commit a crime. They become experts in picking victims. And that's a different psychology in and of itself that we get to actually explore a little bit. I'm curious, though, do you think it's fair to call Dahmer or serial killers monsters or evil? Monsters, I struggle with a little bit. But then I also think we call great white sharks monsters of the sea. And they're just doing what they're supposed to do. So monsters are kind of fictional characters who live in our heads who we're afraid of. Like that's what a monster is. Are these people by accident of birth or otherwise a monster? Well, insofar that they invoke fear in us and can hurt us, yes. Yes. I mean, shoot, I have I have ex-boyfriends I'd call monsters. Is it fair? Does it kind of take away from the academic part of this? A little it does, but it also touches on a reality, which is that monster is a construct anyway right? It's not like we're pointing at a specific thing and we're saying, uh-oh, we're, you're, we're comparing it to that. What is a monster? And what is evil? What is that? It's not a cut and dry box that we can put a lid on. I'm a little bit more comfortable with it that way because it is scary. If somebody's a murderer, they do kind of fit into the category of something we're all afraid of. Cut to the monster under my bed. Hey, that's my thing. <laughs> One of your podcasts was called Stalked, Someone's Watching. That was a TV series. That's okay. That, I did 58 episodes of that for Investigation Discovery. Amazing. Yeah. Can you tell us how prevalent stalking is with murder? If we're to be afraid of anything, we should really be afraid of being stalked. Between six and eight women will go through. Some estimates are one out of three. One out of between eight and 12 men 
go through this experience, it doesn't always become, in fact, it's very rarely ends in a homicide, but it can. Like when you pick up the paper, how often do we see this? And you'll read murder-suicide. More often than not, it's a stalker. And it gets me so mad because I'm like, it's not innocent like that. Like it's not, one day I woke up and decided to kill my girlfriend and then myself. Usually it's somebody who's like, "Uh uh-uh, I know I can't live I can't live without you. I can't live on this planet knowing someone else can have you. So I'm going to kill you. And then I'm going to kill myself. So it's it's incredibly prevalent. And there are so few things you can do when you have a very focused, aggressive, dangerous stalker. What's the time frame, if any, to categorize somebody as stalking? Strangely, Lance, it's state by state. So because California, where I am, we have very very strong anti-stalking laws. And that's because of our celebrity presence. It all began when Rebecca Schaefer was killed by a deranged fan. And then anti-stalking laws really became a thing. Now we'll see prosecutors trying to stick an, a stalking charge on the cases because it, it actually gives a longer sentence than almost any other charge. Then you get to certain states where they don't have strong anti-stalking laws and they're like, ah, that sounds like a problem between you and your girlfriend or you and your husband, and they don't take it seriously at all. So to define something as stalking, I define it as repeated unwanted behavior that feels like harassment. California would be like, this person won't stop calling me and then you can get a restraining order. In other places, it's much, much more complicated. They have to actually hurt you. I feel like that's the case with a lot of battered spouses, specifically battered battered wives, battered girlfriends, battered women. I, I feel like they can file reports They can show bruises. They can post it online. We've seen that. Parents will post their daughter's bruises on their face and say, this person did this. And then nothing happens until she's dead or missing. And the person still hasn't had any repercussions. I see it all the time. I still get phone calls and desperate emails. I mean, here's the rub. When you go to the police with this information, the best you can hope for is a restraining order. Restraining order is not going to deter your stalker. All it does is arm law enforcement with the ability to arrest your stalker should he or she show up on your doorstep. It's not to protect you. It's just to allow the officers the opportunity to arrest the offender. There's a double-edged sword here. Often, restraining orders foment aggression in the stalker, makes them even matter. It's poking the bear. So sometimes after they've been served with a restraining order, they become even more violent. It's a knife's edge to walk. I don't have all of the answers. I do know what I tell people. It's like, you do whatever you have to do. Vary up your route. Tell everyone you know, hey, watch out. I've got this stalker. Keep your eyes peeled. Do not go on social media for the love of God almighty. Just stop. Like your dopamine hit you're getting from all the likes that you're posting of your sexing videos are going to kill you. So there are things you can do to try to protect yourself. You can move, but geography is just a speed bump when it comes to a stalker and their their mentality. There is no more dedicated person than a stalker. Well, what can you do then? Because, I mean, as we talked about, the the piece of paper really doesn't protect you much. So what you do is you become really good friends with your local law enforcement and you report absolutely every interaction that you have. You do try to become as anonymous as you can, as mysterious as you can. You don't do anything in any sort of a routine. You do hope that they get arrested and you hope that you're in a state where if they are arrested, they take it really flipping seriously. If worse comes to worse, you make sure you have a way to protect yourself. Mace. Mace. Bear spray is great. Wasp spray is great. I mean, I am categorically against having a gun in my house, but if I had a stalker, I'd consider it. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. 
Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. You said something a few minutes ago that Tim actually said he wanted to follow up on. And I did as well. You said that there are serial killers based on the work that you've done. You've almost established like what the serial killer will look for, right? Victimology. Victimology. See, that's why you're you're a doctor and I'm not. But I'm like a fake one. I'm a neuroscientist. Like I can't give you penicillin or Adderall, what you really want. Like, Who says I'm a fake doctor? I'm a neuroscientist. Come on. <laughs> Oh, I, have, I was working in a trial one time and this PhD and MD were fighting and she, the PhD calls an MD a body mechanic. I'm like, that was really funny. I do have to give a little aside. I try to bring humor into everything because what I do for a living is so freaking heavy. So I am not trying to be irreverent at all, but I, you'll find that I... Well, first of all, I'm a really goofy girl. But second of all, when you have subject matter that you're dealing with day in and day out, you do tend to be a little bit you know, gallows humor irreverent. So I hope that's not offensive to anybody. It's just a survival tactic. But to answer your question, serial killers, one thing I love about them is, again, that's probably not the right word, is they become students themselves of their their victims. So what we'll see is, and this is not across the board, this is just a trend, we'll see that they'll be very, very careful the first time they kill. And they'll mess up just because they are they don't have the practice yet. And they'll realize, gosh, if I kill Sally the schoolgirl, everybody's looking for me. And that's one of the reasons why you see them approaching people who they think won't be missed as much often sex workers and runaways or homeless, then they start targeting targets who can who won't necessarily be reported and law enforcement sometimes doesn't take it as seriously. We'll see serial killers go down that route, but then this other thing happens where they become emboldened by not being caught and then they venture out of that victimology MO and then they'll start getting sloppier and then they go after people who are a little bit more high profile and that's again, because they're emboldened or they just want to see it in the paper more. Are they experts in the types of communities that they hunt in? Well, interestingly, Dahmer, I think, is the best at this one. So he lived in Milwaukee in a predominantly low-income Black neighborhood. You know, he said himself, there's this a lot, there's an idea that Dahmer was racist and he was racially profiling these men and boys he killed. He says, these are just who, Black and brown men are who I'm attracted to. I'm attracted to young, good-looking, fit men. And I live in this area and that's who's here. That was what Dahmer said. Other people are saying, uh-uh, he is targeting these people. This is racially motivated. We'll never truly understand what, what the real answer is. But if you are operating in an area that has a lot of crime, it's harder for them to put together that there is a serial killer if bodies happen anyway. The Hillside Stranglers, Richard Ramirez, a lot of people got away with that for a long time. Operating in Los Angeles, there's a lot of crime. Milwaukee, there was a lot of crime. So if you're operating in Chicago, you can get away with it for a little bit longer. I don't want to be training people, by the way, to become better killers. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. No, and from the other perspective, how can you avoid getting in a situation where you might be exposed to someone like that? Here's the great irony. We live in a time where you, you get into cars with strangers all the time. Like you can't hitchhike, but you're going to jump into an Uber with a total stranger. You know, with the advent of the internet, it's all so much more complicated. We are interacting with strangers a lot more frequently than we had. Don't go home with somebody you just met online for the love of God, I always open up my Uber door and say, who are you looking for? And they'll say, are you Michelle? So that's kind of how I operate. It's just, it's a lot of common sense. And then this whole social media stuff, like it's nuts. You're putting your kids' faces. Guess what? If somebody becomes obsessed with you and they know where your kid goes to school, that's like not the brightest move. It's just common sense to protect from like the greater evil. Look, serial killers aren't that 
common. I mean, we all talk about them. We all fear them, but you're much more likely to be stalked. The reality is we weren't anonymous in our own small towns. We were all in the white pages, right? Or our parents were. But now there's very few people. You're a rare bird if I can't find you somewhere on the internet. I'm curious about the type of victims that certain killers choose. And I was listening to Mind of a Monster, your podcast, and you spoke about Jeffrey Dahmer and how the, he was suspected of killing women in Germany. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's not really his typical victim. So can you tell me about that? Like, how common is it to change pattern that drastically. I'm sorry. I'm so distracted by Lance's butterfly Clary Starling tattoo <laughs> on his hand that I miss. I just have to regroup. I love that. So when a serial killer is finally caught, there's a couple things that happen. One, a lot of detectives would love to get some of their missing, like their unsolved cases off their desks. So they're like, ah, can I associate this killer with this person or that person? And there's a second thing that happens is it becomes fascinating to kind of look at the historical path of that killer and be like, ooh, but what if they killed someone here? What if they killed somebody there? So it's very, very tempting to look at Dahmer's history and say, well, he was in Germany. He was misbehaving in Germany. Who was missing in Germany at the time? Who was killed then? He didn't kill women. He didn't. Is there exception? Do people step out of their MOs? And that's another misconception. People think that once killers have an MO, that that's the way it is. And that's not true. Like I explained earlier, they evolve. Not only do they evolve in their choice of victims, but they evolve in their ways that they kill. A new, a fledgling serial killer might start by killing somebody from far away and they get that rush just from the kill. But then they need it to be a little bit more intimate. Have you heard of chasing the dragon when you talk about heroin? You never achieve that first high again, but you'll chase it and chase it and chase it. So you do more and more and more drugs trying to get it. The same thing happens with serial killing. So you get that initial high from your first kill, but then it's like, I need more. So the killings be can become more and more intimate. So it's like, oh, we always use his gun and now he's using a knife. That doesn't match the MO, but he also might be wanting to get a little closer. You know what? I always kind of have a tough time wrapping my head around just throughout the conversations that we've had with individuals like yourself and people from law enforcement, you've done a lot of work in this. You've done a lot of work like breaking down the psychology of a serial killer. I try. What's the relationship when you're talking about a serial killer and introducing like narcissism and shame and the need to keep killing? Because everything you're saying always is keeps touching on what I can't put my finger on. They're mostly narcissists, right? They have narcissistic tendencies and qualities. I don't know if I necessarily diagnose them with narcissistic personality disorder. A psychopath has very narcissistic features. Psychopathy isn't even in the DSM anymore. They would get an antisocial personality disorder diagnosis with, you know, narcissistic features. Well, obviously, if they're if you're killing for your own gratification, you're definitely a narcissist, right? Like you definitely have those features. Like Dahmer would not by any part of his other, like other parts of his personality, he wouldn't meet criteria for NPD, narcissistic personality disorder. It's hard to put your finger on it. And I get why what you're saying by that. Like it's touching on this thing. It's self-serving. They're selfish as hell. Selfish. Very, very selfish. Self-serving. Narcissists are not more likely to become criminal if that's where we're going, if that's the question. It wasn't even a fully formed question, just sort of maybe a clarification of all of these different factors that we've heard play into it. And I think that's why it's hard to put your finger on because right. it's not like here's the cookie cutter serial killer 
where there's so many different factors. And we recently heard somebody use shame as a reason why somebody would become violent, maybe graduate to murder on some level, whether it's a, a domestic abuse level or further. That's interesting. I've not heard that. I think that shame in the cycle of shame in the whole shame body, I think that that can certainly play into it. I don't think shame alone could cause someone to become antisocial, but I think that the cycle of shame could certainly feed into that beast. You know, I mean, you do see a lot of like Dahmer, he had some shame and he'd do a lot of drinking. You know, you you can certainly see how that would be part of it. Who is it who said, find a solution that is as simple as possible, but no simpler? So I hesitate to isolate or distill it down into one or two things. But for the most part, generally speaking, there are two general baskets that killers kind of fall into. And I mentioned those earlier, kind of the hot-blooded and the cold-blooded, you know, the predatory and effective. And But there's obviously a lot of gray area in between and Dahmer's one of them. And Dahmer experienced this urge that we don't understand. And we haven't really seen its it's kind before or since. And that is his urge was paraphilia. It was, he was sexually aroused by comatose male bodies. There's all sorts of different disorders like that, like pedophilia. And those are sexual attractions to things that are not considered sexual. That's what drove his behavior. It's an urge that he could not control despite trying to control it. He's not a good guy. I mean, he very easily could have been like, you know what? I'm going to turn myself in so nobody else dies. He, he, there's a lot of things Dahmer could have done, but he's, like you talked about, selfish. He's incredibly selfish. He was okay with this. He didn't like it. He hated the kill. And that's something that's important distinction. Most people kill for the thrill of kill, not Dahmer. We also have a lot of other killers who kill for sex, like Chikatilo, who's this incredibly prolific Russian serial killer. He could not achieve orgasm unless he was in the act of killing somebody. So he killed like 58 people. He was just, that's the only way he could climax. So we do have that kind of motivation into killers. So it's, it becomes complicated, but at the end of the day, aren't they all kind of selfish? Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, have you ever heard of a serial killer who also killed a member of his own family? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The man I think of every time I think of killing your own family, he definitely had all the trappings of a serial killer. The problem was he just, you know, he got caught. Matthew Cushing. I love Matthew Cushing. He was during Mind of a Murderer, the TV show I did for Investigation Discovery, I went and interviewed him in Maine. He was a young guy. He looked like a frat boy. And when he turned 21, he slaughtered his entire family, including his dog, who he loved dearly and took very good care of. You know, I spent a lot of time talking to him in this interview. And well, first of all, it was very scary because they let him dress in plain clothes and we're going through the prison and one door is shutting or opening the other door shutting. And it's very scary. You know, even these high security prisons, they all maximum security, they're all just walking around. They're just cruising around. They're not in their cells. Something people need to understand when we're in those prisons we're just hanging out with the killers. And we went down, my producer and I, and then the door shut. And this guy's like, oh, let me help you with the camera. And he starts carrying the camera from my producer's hand. I'm like, oh, that's the killer. And I'm like, Matthew Cushing. And I introduced myself and I take the camera out of his hand. He was such an interesting killer. Did not look like a killer at all. He had been having urges to kill since he could remember. His earliest memory, he loved his grandfather, but his grandfather was tying his shoe. And he's like, there was this hammer next to me. And I just wanted to pick it up. I was five years old. And I wanted to bash him in the head so Badly, but I didn't do it because I knew I'd get in trouble. But he loved his grandpa. So he had had these urges to kill his entire life. He woke up that morning. He's like, I have to finally kill somebody. He wanted to kill all of his roommates, but they'd already gone to class. So he drives home. He slaughters his entire family and then sets the house on fire and then goes and hangs out with his girlfriend or his roommates or whatever. And I asked him, I said, explain to me the dog. And he said, do you know how many people in prison, they don't care about 
anything else than why I killed the damn dog. And he said, I just killed every single person I've ever loved. You think I give a fuck about my dog? Sorry, excuse my language, but that was a quote. And it was like one of those moments where I'm like, this is so much bigger. We would love to be like, oh, he was abused at age four. So he killed his whole family. Murder is so much more complicated than we give it credit for. And we want it to be simple because it scares us. And I wish it were, I wish it were, but we do know some things. And that's why I have these conversations all the time because killing your own family. And if you love your family, you know, if you love your family and you're willing to kill them, that's a beast we don't know that much about. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is that more of a spree killing or a spree killer without the cooldown period? Like, is there an example of killer or killers out there who maybe killed their kid? Edward Kemper. Well, he killed his mom. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, you have those. Like, it's a serial killer, again, not to put all serial killers in the same category because they're not. And that's another mistake we make is assuming that serial killers are all incredibly similar and they're not. If you lack remorse, empathy, and guilt... Serial killers can love things. Psychopaths can love things. They just don't love it like we do. It's not the same feeling. It's a much more blunted feeling. If a family member's in the way or it benefits them, remember, they're very goal-driven people, reward-seeking people. If family members gives them some something they're looking for, they a lot of them will not hesitate to kill. I wanted to ask you about the uh, Netflix Dahmer series and the reaction that people had to it. I don't know if you saw it, but you obviously know about the backlash to it. Yeah, I do. I did not complete it. Here's the thing. It's not a documentary. It's a movie. And I think that the understanding was that it was going to be completely historically accurate. And it's not. Like, for example, it's my understanding that Jeffrey Dahmer's dad did not take him out and like kill animals and teach him how to stuff them and taxidermy and all that. Like he didn't even know Jeffrey was doing that was, is my understanding. If I looked at it as just entertainment, I thought it was well done. Very well done. There are Jeffrey Dahmer documentaries. I mean, mind of a monster is one of them. You know, they have a whole series on, on Jeffrey Dahmer and it's, and it is accurate. That one is accurate. So I think you kind of have to suspend disbelief a little bit. If you're looking at a movie, this is a scripted movie. Those are actors. You know, so I I kind of was like, oh, I don't love the inaccuracies of it. But then again, I can't watch anything. Criminal Minds, Dexter, because I get so mad at the inaccuracies, which is so stupid of me. But if you can kind of differentiate, disentangle that. I get what you're saying on that. Is there any responsibility that producers of a show like this and the performers who will then say like they had to research the character that they're playing, which is a real character? Is there any responsibility for them to address that and make sure that the people who are affected by these crimes know that they're aware that what people are watching and contributing to their success is sort of on the backs of these people who they're just kind of playing fast and loose with the facts on? Right. And I think that the kind of exploitive nature of entertainment, that's a much broader idea, right? Like the personal responsibility, those who profit, I mean, aren't we all profiting off of crime and victims? Like people have to die for you to be entertained. I struggle with that big time. And generally speaking, even when I'm as accurate as I can, I still really struggle with, I'm making money, but there's a victim like, that it, 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 for all of us, I think it's an issue. But I look at like 
movies in general that are made about famous people who may have victimized other people. And I think that that's a broader responsibility. It's a bigger conversation. Like how much is entertainment responsible for making sure that the victims and the families are um, being respected in that process? And and how accurate do you have to be if it's something based on a true story? But does it? how close does it have to be? I don't know. I don't, I don't have an answer for that. Yeah, I don't either. And I'm certainly not trying to put you on the spot by saying this, because I think after hearing and listening and watching the material, the work that you've done, I mean, you have a background in your education and what you're doing is presenting facts. Like, I hope you don't think I was getting at that because what you are doing is educating people. You are, you have a whole series on Dahmer that is based on facts that uses uh, him in his own words. So if you need to go to something to learn about this, and figure out like why, why if if you really want to know, like that is what you're doing. So I think that's really like responsible, and you've taken on a uh, daunting task, especially with Dahmer. I was just curious of what you felt about it on the other side, where it's more for the entertainment part. Yeah, you know, and I'm 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 the worst audience for it because I hate watching it. I don't do well if I know a story and there's inaccuracies. It is hard for me to suspend disbelief and be like, oh, well, this is just entertainment. They're taking like artistic liberties and it's a movie and they do do that. I personally am not entertained by that. So I don't like it. I'm just like, "Eh, we have the facts. They're sensational enough. We don't need to make it weirder or worse. And another thing I don't like when people misrepresent a murder is they want, in fiction, they want to tie a bow and actually in nonfiction too. They want to tie a bow on it at the end and be like, aha, it's because his mom spanked him. I don't like that. I don't like the simplification of crime because it makes us all feel like, okay, now I'm safe. I can put him in the box. This is why he did that. And it's just not, it's just not like that. But it makes us feel better, Dr. Ward. I know. I know it does. (laughs) I know it does. You know, we are getting closer. We do have some answers, right? We do have some answers. They're just not always the answers people want. I got in a lot of trouble, actually. Not a lot of trouble, but I had some unfavorable opinions about my Mind of a Murderer show. Some people interpreted my explanations for criminal behavior as excuses. As, well, you're just giving them excuses just because they're a bad person and they're evil and that's why they did those things. People are much more open to it now. But at the time, I felt like people were resistant. We're very punitive. We are a punitive bunch of people. And it's like, (laughs) well, I don't care if it's a brain tumor. It's not a brain tumor. He's just bad. I'm like... Well, yeah, he's a shitty person, but he also has a brain tumor right there in that area responsible for that behavior. So like you say you want to know the why, here's the why, but then it takes away their maybe um, ability to punish and people love to punish. People love that. I blame Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) I do. It, It made serial killers look cool and smart and classy. Yeah, Hannibal Lecter was a hero in that movie. He's a hero. No, no, isn't that crazy? I know. So at the end, of, you're like rooting for him to, you know, hang up the phone and go get that guy at the very end. Oh, sorry for the spoiler, but <laughs> what? <laughs> he kills two people in the ambulance or more, and wears one guy's face, and and that was acceptable. We're like, that's like, awesome. Well, he had to get out. Yeah, he had to get out. How was he going to do it? We're like, but you're clever and cute. Like, it is, you know, we are simultaneously repelled and attracted to killers. You know, like, we're like, you're disgusting. Tell me more. Oh, isn't he sexy? Fashion is born from serial killers. Fashion. Bunch of people started wearing Dahmer's glasses after Dahmer. Like, it's this strange phenomenon. We are simultaneously attracted and repelled. I weekend as a clown for kids now. Oh God! Only saying. because of Gacy, though. It was my bad Gacy joke. This is <laughs> this is cutting room floor stuff right here. 
Okay. Don't you love your um, your editors? We're, I'm just like, edit, 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 cut that out. I did not say that word. And now there's so many words you can't say. I'm like, I need a PhD in 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 like being politically correct. <laughs> right, I, know. I said somebody was crazy, and someone's like, you can't say crazy. I'm like, I can't say crazy. What am I supposed to say instead? Yeah, I'm like, what is what is it? Bananas? This person's bananas. Now, what am I going to call a banana? <laughs> well, and is are we insulting bananas or monkeys? Like, yeah. I don't know. My children tell me all the time. They're like, you can't say that. I'm like, oh, God, I'm just going to stop talking. The best worst one we heard was that we can't say child molester anymore. We have to say minor attracted. Instead of pedophile. You can't say pedophile. Even though that's a diagnosis, you can't say it. Because they get offended. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I mean, that's, what, that's what we heard. Minor attracted. Although I did have a conversation on this podcast with a fascinating, fascinating um, psychiatrist. I love this guy, Dr. Berlin. And he's like, look, if it's not safe to tell someone you're attracted to young children, how do you expect them to get treatment? Like if you, if there's no safe place to go to a therapist and be like, help, I am seeking out pornography with children in it. I'm sexually attracted to, to, to children. If we don't make it okay to seek out treatment, how do we prevent our children from being victimized? Damn. Yeah. That's why you're the doctor. Well, I advocated that we need to make it a safe place. Like we have to allow them to, to seek treatment. You know, we have to allow that. It's the third rail though. You can't touch it. You can't this. You know, I don't have the answers, but I think that if we don't allow any place for treatment, I mean, it's kind of, are we not part of the problem then? So maybe the whole minor attracted thing comes from that. Maybe to make, to make people less likely, destigmatize it a little bit to make them more likely to go seek treatment. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, it still feels silly, but maybe. I always want to bring this topic up at about 55 minutes into an interview. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, and next time on Things You Can't Say on podcasts. Well, Dr. Ward, this has been a uh, a fantastic chat, and I feel like we've learned a lot. And uh, I just want to thank you for your time and your knowledge and for uh, spending some time with us here today. No, I thank you guys for letting me come on and, and chat and get the word out there. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And we will for sure push everybody to every single podcast that you do, all the all of the stuff that you do, your website and everything. If someone were to just find you and get all of the information in sort of the one place or a couple of places, where would they look? Oh, gosh. See, part of that anonymity is, is me. My Instagram, probably Dr. Michelle Ward is probably the best. ID has a ton of bios on me and, and you can reach me through there as well. Or how not to raise a serial killer. Did you want to give your like your home address here? Well, so yeah. So actually, I'm just going to link my Google Maps. So that oh, perfect. If you listen to the mind of a monster, you're going to get you're going to get so much information about me. You're not going to want to find me. <laughs> <laughs> 